everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Right now we're in a series called, Is God Racist? Where we're looking at the Bible for answers to the injustice of racism and discrimination in our world today. If you're new to the ministry, welcome. Love for you to leave us a comment below to let us know that you are here. Now, chances are that most of you have seen a copy of Warner Solomon's painting, Head of Christ, although you might just know it as White Jesus. The oil painting showing a blue-eyed Jesus with dark blonde hair has been copied over a billion times, and it has been called the most reproduced religious art piece in the world. It's appeared on church murals and Bible covers, prayer cards. It's been hung in courtrooms and police stations, libraries and schools. And for almost 50 years, it defined what Jesus looked like to generations of North Americans. The problem, of course, is that it portrayed Jesus closer to Solomon's own Scandinavian ancestry than it did to the actual Middle Eastern Jewish features that Jesus would have actually had. But Solomon wasn't alone. From Charlton Heston's portrayal of Moses to da Vinci's rendition of The Last Supper, there's been a long line of people who have pictured the characters of the Bible as white Europeans. And I think that it's had more of an impact than we might want to admit. Muhammad Ali famously shared a childhood story where he asked his mother whether, whether he would go to heaven. When, he tried to, when she tried to reassure him, he asked, well, what happened to all of the black angels when they took the pictures? In his mind, Christianity seemed like a religion for white people, and many others have come to the same conclusion. Now, as we've gone through this series, we've seen that it's always been God's plan to bless the peoples of the earth. Even when his plan centered on the descendants of Abraham and he delivered the Israelites from Egypt, we saw that there was this huge crowd of people of various ethnicities that joined them. Many of those put their faith in the God of Abraham, including, as we saw last week, Moses's African wife. Now, if we were to leave our study there, you might conclude that maybe Israel was a little diverse, but not inclusive. Maybe some foreigners joined the Jewish people, but they were probably kept on the sidelines without any real status or significance in God's plan. Well, today's passage is one of the accounts that shows how mistaken that assumption would be. And it highlights God's love for all his children and the multi-ethnic plan of God. If you don't have a Bible handy, I'd encourage you to pause the video at this point and grab one and turn with me to Numbers chapter 25. I'll read from verses 1 to 13. At Numbers 25 verses 1 to 13. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. 
When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to, to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. This is the word of God. Now, this is a shocking passage on a number of different levels. So to properly understand it, we need to back up a little and put it in context. God has just delivered the Israelites from Egypt, and he's seeking to establish a nation of people who would reflect his love, his justice, and his righteousness. He calls them to exclusive devotion, but only because he's so fully devoted to them, and he knows how easy it would be for them to give in to temptation and end up just as miserable as when he had first rescued them. When this chapter opens, the Israelites are now less than 20 kilometers from Jericho. This is the last stop before they enter the promised land. But there are many people who are threatened by the Israelites. In the three chapters preceding this one, Balak, the king of Moab, has hired a prophet named Balaam and offered him large sums of money to curse the Israelites. Each time he does, Balaam, who isn't Jewish, tells the king that he's unable to say anything other than what God has told him. In fact, instead of cursing the people of God, he proclaims blessing after blessing upon them. It's a startling picture of God's love for his people. It's a reminder of his good purposes for them and his unfailing commitment to care for them. And so we come to this chapter expecting to see evidence of why God loves his people as faithfully as he does. Instead, we just read in verse 1 that, that statement, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. It's a deliberately vulgar description of their behavior because what they're doing, especially following on the heels of what God has just done for them, is shocking. It's like a part in a romantic movie where you see the wife planning some special date and telling her friend how much she loves her husband. And then they cut to the next scene and show the husband in an act of adultery. It's a painful betrayal of committed love. Again, as we've seen earlier in this series, the sin isn't that an Israelite couldn't marry a Moabite. An entire book of the Bible is devoted to a Moabite named Ruth who married an Israel and became an Israelite and became part of the ancestry of Jesus Christ. The problem wasn't with Moabite ethnicity, but in this case with Moabite idolatry. And that's what we see in verse 2. The Moabite women here are inviting the Jewish men to their religious sacrifices. They're flirting and feasting, and before you know it, they're following, falling down to worship gods they don't know. 
And so verse three just says, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. They've abandoned the God who saved them. They've betrayed the one who was faithful to them. And at the very moment that God was defending their blessing, they had sought their own blessing in a false religion. Now, now if you're surprised, you shouldn't be. The Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Just as God has a plan to bless you, Satan has a plan to destroy you. And if he knocks at the front door and finds it locked, he'll try the side door and the basement window and then the garage and the balcony. If anyone had gone up to an Israel directly and said, how would you feel about worshiping Baal this Saturday? They'd look at you like you were crazy and they might get angry. But you let your guard down with a Baal worshiper who's attractive and attentive. It's a whole different story. First we're tempted physically and then we're tempted spiritually. If you don't believe me, ask any Christian you know, and they can probably name someone who grew up in the church and walked down this exact path. Have you left the side door of your heart open? Have you given opportunity to the devil? As we reflect on how faithful God has been to us, we find the power to keep ourselves for him. When we see his commitment to bless us, it takes away our desire to search for blessing in the world. So what's God going to do? The nation that he has rescued and blessed is on the verge of completely abandoning him. If he didn't love so much, he'd just move on. But he's like a scorned wife fighting for her marriage. God's like a doting father who sees his daughter being seduced by someone with evil intentions. And so he acts drastically and decisively. In verse 4, he tells Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Moses is commanded to hang and publicly shame the leadership for failing to protect the people. In refusing to confront the people's sin, they have been, become complicit in their unfaithfulness. The instructions were clear enough. But Moses decided they were too severe. He responds like the parent who just can't work up the courage to discipline their child's disobedience and decides they'll just nag them and threaten them instead. Instead of publicly hanging the leaders in verse 5, Moses goes to the leaders and just asks them to deal with the men who committed the adultery. The leader's negligence goes unaddressed and the nation's betrayal is dealt with in half measures. And there's no indication that the leaders even follow Moses' instruction. He watered down God's command and they ignored his. Nobody's prepared to deal with the sin. When this happens, expect dreadful consequences. At the end of verse 6, we see this huge gathering of Israelites at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And they're weeping and seeking God's mercy. God has brought a plague to make the people see the seriousness of their sin and bring them to their senses. Thousands of people have died. But instead of treating their sin with the decisiveness God calls them to, they seem to question his harshness. And they just want things to go back to normal. Moses' half-hearted attitude toward, towards God's remedy for the people's sin is probably indicative of how the people saw the situation as well. It's not that they thought the people's behavior was ideal, 
But surely God was overreacting. And I wonder if you can relate. Do you find some of the Bible's descriptions of hell over the top? Does the idea of God's eternal judgment just seem a little extreme? Do you confront sin in your own life with the urgency that the Bible calls you to? Do you discipline sin in, in your children the way the Bible describes? Or are you more comfortable with your own half measures? And do you believe in the church's role in confronting flagrant sin in its members? The message of this passage is that God's anger isn't turned away by half measures. Sin and its consequences will continue to grow in our lives until we see them the way that he does. And so as we're reading here, it looks like we're about to witness the destruction of the people of God. More than 20,000 people have died by this point. And instead of getting better, things take a turn for the worse. Look at verse 6. There it says, and behold, it's that word that means, get this. One of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Up until this point, the men had been sneaking around and keeping their adultery in Moab. Now one of them has the audacity to waltz right into his own tent with a Midianite woman. And he does so in plain view of Moses, the people, and his own wife and children. We're witnessing the death of shame. And with it, idolatry and, adul and adultery are about to become normalized among God's people. And even then, Moses seems unwilling to act. The only thing that saves a nation is the outrage and courage of a young priest. Starting in verse 7, it says, When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague and the people of Israel was stopped. Finally, someone was as jealous for God's glory as God is. Finally, someone was as angered by the people's sin as God is. Finally, someone acts. And as he does, God's wrath is averted and the plague stops. And the amazing thing is, it wasn't Moses. In verse 11, God commends a young priest. It says, he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the, consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Then in verse 12, he makes a covenant of peace with him. And in verse 13, he describes that that involves a perpetual priesthood. In other words, the right to offer sacrifices in the temple will be reserved for Phineas and his descendants. The other Levites can play trumpets and guard the entrances. They can collect the offering, offerings and maintain the grounds, but only Phineas's descendants can serve at the altar and enter the holy place. In setting apart this ancestral line on the basis of this event, it's as if God is saying, this is the kind of zeal for my honor that my representatives should demonstrate. This is a passion for holiness that should characterize my priests. 
Not even Moses was given a perpetual covenant like this. So who is this Phineas anyway? Verse 11 says that he is the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Exodus chapter 6, verse 25 gives us more background. It says, Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. Interestingly, both Putiel and Phineas are Egyptian names. The daughter of Putiel was almost certainly part of the mixed multitude, the, the, the crowd of people of varying ethnicities that left Egypt with the Israelites. She married Aaron's son, Eleazar. But what's more interesting is Phineas's name. In Egyptian, it literally means the Cushite. Now, as we saw last time, Cush was an African kingdom to the south of Egypt in, the, in modern day Sudan. And at the time of the Exodus, there was a large number of Cushites living in Egypt. So the Jewish Eleazar meets the Cushite woman from Egypt and they have a son and likely because he looked more African than Jewish, they named him the Cushite. Now, maybe that's a small point, but it's an example of how diverse Israel really was. And it shows how prominent a place non-Jews were in the plans and purposes of God. I can't help but think it might have helped to change attitudes in slave owning and segregationist strongholds. If they knew that the person that God had singled out as representing zeal for his honor, the one with whom God made a perpetual covenant, and the one from whom all legitimate priests descended, was a man born to a Jewish father and an African mother whose name was the Sudanese. Instead of that, they got a billion copies of a Scandinavian-looking white Jesus, and children like Muhammad Ali were left wondering where all the black angels went. God certainly isn't racist, but it's not hard to understand how people could have come to that conclusion. And it's my prayer that you and I would reflect the diversity and inclusion that passages like this show us in the heart of God. Now, one of the purposes of this passage is to call us to imitate Phineas, at least in his, his, his heart and his uh, seriousness in confronting sin. God is committed to his people with a deep and faithful love. And, and so he's rightly angered when he sees his children being seduced by the world. He wants us to see the seriousness of sin and confront it in our lives with the urgency that he feels. If you've ever been moved by love, you know that you hate anything that threatens to destroy that love. So don't leave the side door open. Don't take half measures to deal with the sin in your life. Cut it off, lock it down, shut it out. Do what you need to not give any opportunity to the devil in your life. If you're a parent, don't make excuses for your child's disobedience. Don't tolerate what God hates. That's not an excuse to fly off the handle or show anything but firm, loving discipline, but it is a warning against half measures and a flippant attitude toward that which the Bible calls sin. This passage also speaks to our church elders. Part of our calling is to guard the honor and glory of God in our midst. That means we preach and teach the hard parts of the Bible as well as the more comforting passages. 
It means that we're called to confront sin and hold the line where the world would have us to update God's standards and revise his revealed will. Now, while this passage does call us to imitate Phineas in many ways, there's something else this chapter teaches us that isn't about us at all. Because while there are things that we can learn from Phineas, if we have to have a priest who will put a spear through someone every time God's people descend into sin and idolatry, we're done for, right? It's hopeless. Phineas's zeal pointed toward another kind of priest. When Jesus came, he was outraged by sin as well. He was outraged by what he saw in the temple. The money changers and the marketers of the ritual animals, they had turned worship into big business. And so Jesus famously overturned the tables and drove out the animals. His disciples remembered the prophecy about him that said, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus showed the zeal that Phineas had about the seriousness of sin. But unlike Phineas, he never threw a spear through anyone. He directed his hatred of sin in a different direction. Instead of spearing a flagrant sinner to turn away God's wrath and make atonement for the people's sin, he himself was speared as a sinner as he died on the cross and bore the punishment for our sin. Through his death, he turned away God's wrath once and for all and made atonement for the sins of the world. Only he combined perfect justice with perfect love. And so through faith in him, we can escape the judgment that our sins deserve. But we treat our sins with half measures when we act like his death doesn't matter. And we can somehow save ourselves. Only through faith in Jesus Christ do we receive forgiveness from a holy God. For those who follow Jesus Christ, he teaches us to balance our zeal for God's justice and holiness with the same kind of grace and self-sacrificing love that Jesus showed us on the cross. His forgiveness forever changes us. Let's look to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we see a, a passage like this that is so stark and shocking in, in its descriptions of sin and your hatred of it. And frankly, it, it shows us how lightly we often treat the sin in our own lives. Heavenly Father, we pray for your courage and urgency from you, faith and eyes to see the sin that would stand between us and the love and the blessing that we can enjoy in you. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would follow Jesus Christ in demonstrating the kind of love that sacrifices, the kind of love that forgives, the kind of love that he showed, showed at the cross, but also the kind of outrage at sin that would otherwise destroy us. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your commitment to love and to bless your people. 
May we follow in that love and reflect your holiness in our lives. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope today's message has helped you to see the diversity of God's plan and his heart for all people. And I hope it shows you the seriousness of sin, but also the greatness of God's love. If you think this is a message that other people need to hear, then help share the link and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.